Uh, so what's up, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, really glad to be with you guys this Marathon Sunday. Uh, we are in week four of our series on faith and work, and we've been examining what relation our jobs should have to our faith. Better stated, what relation our faith should have to our work. Now, on average, most of us will spend about 100,000 hours of our life doing work, doing a job. And it would be a crime if we've spent those 100,000 hours completely disconnected from our faith. Now, there are two questions that every single person in here needs to answer. Every person listening on the podcast, make sure y'all download that. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's going well. Uh, <laughs> two questions that everyone needs to answer are this. Who are you and what should you be doing? Now, you don't need to all come to agreement in terms of, you know, what Scripture says, what's, what's this or what's that, but I can promise us, all of us, if you want a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life where you get what God has for you in life, you absolutely need to answer these two questions. Who are you and what should you be doing? Uh, the questions of identity uh, we've been walking through and in terms of what should we allow to define us, what should we allow to determine who we are. And oftentimes, with our relation to our work, we try to seek work to do something that it was never intended to do. So we ask work to define us, and as a result, we put pressures on it that it cannot bear. And today, we're spending time asking the question of purpose. What should we be doing with our lives? Now, from the outset, uh, I do want to be really clear that the question of purpose is one that changes throughout our lives. There is not one thing that you are meant to do for the rest of your life. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about retirement, and, and it's serious, not that I'm um, dissatisfied with, with what I'm doing, but I'm really fortunate to talk to a lot of other pastors who are in their 50s and 60s, and they're getting ready to retire, and I see the struggles in their lives right now of them wrestling what is next for them. Now, at some point, there will be another person who comes behind me who's dumb enough to think that this is a good job and will take over my position, uh, and I will gladly hand them the keys and run away as fast as I can. And hopefully that's 30 years from now. But right now, um, I, I, I'm seeking to be faithful in what God is calling me to do now, but knowing that, that's going to change in general. As we're thinking about what we're called to do, I want us to first from the very outset know that calling is always about being called to someone, not something. But still, what should you and I be doing? Now, even before we move a little bit more forward to, to figure out what it is that you and I should be doing with our lives, Man, I want to make sure that we see the value and the dignity and the beauty of all work. Most times when people think about the concept of calling or what is it that God wants me to do, we automatically switch our brains towards the concept of working at a church or working at a ministry or doing some amazing charity work, which by all accounts could be very good. But if we limit what God is calling people to do only to, uh, to ministry or to charity work, then we're going to miss out on so much of what God wants to do. In the first three messages, we've talked a great deal about that work, the way we should view our work is that God seeks to care for people through you. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's a photographer, and we didn't spend as much time, I didn't you know, let him know this in the middle of the conversation, but as he was talking about his work as a photographer, I was thinking how God could care for someone through his work of simply standing behind a camera and taking really good shots. Uh, anybody who's ever lost someone knows the value of a great photograph. The photograph that just captures their essence, uh, the smile just lights up the room, and when you see it, it just melts you, and it takes you to a really happy place. 
Now, all throughout Scripture, the Bible promises us that God will comfort his people in a time of grief. And how does God comfort you in your times of grief? Does God open up the heavens and tickle your feet under the, under the covers to let you know that he's with you? No, sometimes the way that God comforts you is just in letting you see a really amazing photograph of someone that you loved. All of our work, all of it in every genre is stuff that God could use to care for people. So the question of what should we be doing with our lives, it's a question of discernment. And to define discernment, it's a kind of a churchy word that we hear most times in church. Discernment is the process, process of hearing from God and then allowing those words that you hear from God to direct your steps. So it's a two-part thing. It's one, hearing from God. And then it's also saying, God, it's going to be your will, not my own. I'm going to allow your thoughts, your words to direct me and not my own thoughts, not my own ways. So that's discernment. Now, there's a scripture that comes in the book of Ephesians that I want to pray over us today as we march in this road of trying to figure out what it is that God is calling us to do so that we would leave here today more confident, more assured, more ready to be the men and women that God has called us to be. It comes from the book of Ephesians in the first chapter, and Paul, the apostle, says these words, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you, you can insert your name there. God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. That phrase in verse 18, the hope of his calling, it implies that God has hopes for you. What do you think God hoped for when he created you? What do you think God hopes for when he thinks of you? What do you think God had in mind when you came into this world? One of the things that my, my family and I are, are doing right now, my, my youngest son is about six months old, and uh, he's sleeping through the night most nights, praise Jesus. And uh, the way that we get him to sleep through the night is something called a dream feed. Uh, dream feed is we go into his room at about 10 or 11 p.m., fill a bottle with milk, shove that joint in his mouth, and make him drink as much as possible so that he could be full and hopefully sleep through the night. Everybody wins. He gets food, we get sleep. Uh, that's a win-win combination. In those moments where I'm feeding him his bottle, it's quiet. And those are usually the most prayerful moments that I have of any day. Uh, there's no noise. There's no basketball in, in the background. There's nothing that's going on except me and him, and it's often the time that I start to pray for him in his life, and I did the same thing for his older brother. And when I'm looking at him, I'm hoping so much for his life. I'm hoping what I hope he becomes. I'm hoping what I hope he stays away from. But I have so many hopes and so many dreams for him, and here's what Scripture's telling us. God is a way better parent than any one of us could ever be, and God has hopes and he has dreams for you. He has things that he has specifically set out in course for you and I to do. There's good works that God has prepared in advance for you and I to do. And you and I, if we do nothing else, we need to make sure that we're doing those things. So how do you determine what it is that God has hoped for you? How do you determine what it is that you're supposed to be doing with your life? Now, we're going to answer that question, but before we do, I want to set some more guardrails in understanding this relation to our faith and our work. I don't want necessarily to give us a perfect answer, but I want us to have a good way of thinking about the way that our faith should play into our work. What do I mean by that? In our pursuit 
of seeking out what it is that God has for us, we need to make sure that at all times we are allowing God to be God and for us to not be God. What do I mean by that? Uh, faith in a lot of ways is about embracing uncertainty. And by uncertainty, I don't mean that we don't know anything. I don't mean that we don't have convictions, but I do mean that we don't control anything. It sometimes means we do a lot of waiting and trusting that God is up to something. Uh, there's a recently deceased pastor by the name of Eugene Peterson. He wrote a lot of books uh, in the message translation of the Bible. And here's what he says about the Bible. He says, Scripture is not the answer book to all of our problems, but a doorway into the world of God's mystery. And one of the mysteries of this life is that God is not interested in solving all your problems in the ways we think they should be solved. Now, I love the Bible. I believe uh, the Bible is the inspired words of God for our lives but there is no chapter you can turn to to see if you should go to Fordham or Columbia. There is no chapter you should turn to to say, should I date him or him? There is no uh, specific thing where we can just read up and see, maybe if his name is like Jeremiah and you drop the Bible on the bed and you're like, well, <laughs> Jeremiah it is. I wouldn't advise that, by the way. As good as God's word is for us, it, it, it leaves so much in there, there's so much in our lives that we cannot t turn to directly, which in turn means that you and I need to develop the skills and learn from Scripture how to go about certain processes when there is not a direct answer available. All throughout Scripture, you'll see that God is very comfortable with allowing you and I to remain in a state of uncertainty and in mystery. There's a Scripture in John 11 where Jesus hears that his boy Lazarus is sick, and it says, but, but now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. So Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus is a healer. What does Jesus do? He stays there for two more days and Lazarus dies. One of the things you'll see over and over again throughout Scripture is that God, Jesus, is not interested in answering our problems in the way that you and I think that they should be solved. And if you and I are going to have a faith that can meaningfully inform the way we should view our work, we need to have a faith that will allow God to be God, which might mean that you might get an answer today, next year, or five years from now. But in the meantime, you and I are trusting the entire way that Jesus is up to something. There's an author by the name of John Bloom. He said it like this, God doesn't always make his will clear because he values our being transformed more than he values our being informed. We're going to walk through a portion of scripture where I think does lead us to the place where we can start the process of discernment, but God might not give you that answer because at the deep root of everything that God is after in your life, it's after your transformation, not merely your information. You, need to be, you and I need to be the type of people that can handle the information. There's a story about an ethics professor that went to go see Mother Teresa in Calcutta, India, when she was doing some of her um, most amazing work in one of the poorest regions of the world. The ethics professor goes to Mother Teresa and says, hey, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about a career change and I'm thinking about so many different things. Can you please pray for me that I will have clarity? Mother Teresa looks at him and says, no, I will not pray for that. She says, I've never had clarity. All I've had was trust. So I'm going to pray that you trust God. A lot of us, when we're asking the question, God, what is it that you want for me in my life? We're actually asking for God to give us something so we wouldn't need him anymore. 
We're asking for a level of clarity, for a level of pursuit that we would not need to trust Jesus anymore. And God is not after giving us that in our lives. So how do we determine what it is that God, what God has for us? And again, this answer might not come to you next week or next year, but I, I believe that this is a way in Scripture that gives us really great principles on how you and I can discern and find out what it is that God wants you to do with your life. And this is true relationally, vocationally, in everything that you have. Um, it comes to us in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you can do what? So that you can discern what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. Here the Apostle Paul places two prerequisites on our, our ability to being able to hear from God. The first prerequisite is that you and I will uh, lay our lives down and present our bodies as a living sacrifice, and we'll unpack that in a second. And the second one is that we prevent ourselves from being conformed to the world uh, or to this age, as Paul says, in the pursuit of our discernment. Uh, the first one, if you want to hear from God, if you want to know what God wants you to do in your life, here's the first thing you need to do. You need to give up control of your life. Now, Paul, when he's talking about this thing of present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul was a Jewish man, and he wrote uh, in many respects to other Jewish people who would have understood this text to be a, a very certain way. So they were very familiar with the temple system of Old Testament sacrifices, and uh, when they heard of uh, this principle that Paul was presenting, they would have known uh, exactly what he was getting at. In the temple system, there would be animals that were specifically set apart for a very specific purpose. And these um, animals, instead of being consumed by the people, would be offered to God. So when Paul says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's saying that you and I need to do two things. We need to set ourselves apart, that our goal and our end game in our pursuit of work or whatever we do is not ourselves, but it's God, and we're going to unpack that in a minute, and that we offer up our lives to God instead of consuming it for ourselves. Now, some people get uh, kind of caught up on the concept of sacrifice and miss out on what Paul is saying. He's saying that our lives should be ones that have these two characteristics, that we do not see ourselves as living for ourselves. And the best way to see this is your bank account and in your calendar. If your entire bank account and your entire calendar is spent on living for yourself, you're going to miss out on hearing from God. One of the blinders we have is that we want to find God's will, but we don't want to give up control of our lives first. And Lord knows it's difficult. The way Jesus works is that he told this to his first followers, and these words echo true for us today. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And here's the wisdom that Jesus presents to us, which is opposite to the way you and I would approach the world. He says, for whoever would save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In this text, Jesus is not talking about being martyred for him. He's talking about our, uh, our loyalties and the way that we're living our life. And he's saying, if you set out your life to, li to live it for yourself, you're going to lose it. It's going to be lost in no purpose. It's going to be lost. And you're going to look back on the end of your days, and there will be a great deal of regrets in the things that you did not do. If you want to find yourself, if you want to find your life, if you want to find something meaningful, give up control of your life. Jesus was very familiar with the concept of crucifixion and crosses. Uh, he likely would have seen many people crucified before his eventual crucifixion. And Jesus picks this analogy on purpose 
um, because people only carry their crosses to be crucified. A.W. Tozer is a Christian author who presents these truths about what Jesus was getting at when Jesus was saying, if you really want to follow me, these are the marks, these are the characteristics that are going to be present in your life. Uh, Those who are crucified have three distinct marks. Number one, they are facing only one direction. Number two, they can never turn back. And number three, they no longer have plans of their own. So many times we miss out on the beauty of what God wants to give us because we have plans of our own. And God, we can't hear God's voice in our ears because our voice, our plans are crowding out the plans and the voice of God that he wants to give to us. If there's one failure of the American church, and this is true of our church as well, is that we have let people think that we can follow Christ on our own terms, that we can have everything we've ever wanted without ever having to give anything up. But here's what Jesus is getting at. You and I will not find God's will for our life until we first put to death the idea that you have the right to live as you choose. Now, here's what you want. If you want a life of purpose and of meaning, our culture tells us that if you really want to find, you know, purpose and meaning, you need to look deep down inside of yourself. And in looking deep down inside of yourself, you're going to find the answers that you want. But here's the problem with that. Hindsight is 2020, right? When you look back on your own life, Have you made the type of decisions that you say, I'm going to follow that person? Uh, I know certainly I haven't. When I was in college, uh, I had um, uh, an amazing opportunity. My Spanish professor came up to me and said, hey, there's a a school in Argentina right outside Buenos Aires that you can go to for a semester for free. Your room, your board, your tuition is all paid for because we have an exchange program. All you need to do is pay for your flight and go down there. I was super excited. I went and told my college girlfriend, like, I'm about to go to Argentina. And she talked me out of it. And three, we broke up three days later after that, too. <laughs> it was one of the worst decisions that I've ever made to give up on an opportunity of a lifetime for a relationship that was going to end in like 72 hours. I have 100 times in my life where I've made terrible decisions, where I, but, but by the grace of God, If it had not been for the Lord on my side, I know where I would be. I would be in a really terrible place. You and I do not have the capacity to guide and to direct our own lives. In hindsight, if we were to be really honest in looking at ourselves, we would know that. So we lack the ability to guide ourselves. But secondly, there's also a catch to living a life of true meaning and purpose, the one that God wants for you, and it's this. Here's the problem. We want to be the end and not the means to an end. You and I always desire, at a very fundamental level, we want to be the end, but not a means to an end. Everything in your, in your life that has value is a means to an end. A shovel is not just there for you to look at. It's a means to an end, that it does something, it accomplishes something, but it's not an end of itself. Many people struggle with finding meaning and purpose and value in our lives because we want to be the end of ourselves uh, I was at a conference last week, and one of the speakers by the name of Dr. Crawford Loritz said something that hit me directly in the chest. He said, uh, one of our main problems is that we're, se- we're seeking fulfillment from our call instead of fulfilling our call. We're seeking fulfillment from our call instead of fulfilling our call. Now, calling is about becoming a means to an end, and that end is not you. I've told this story before, but... Um, Right around the corner from here on 125th Street, one of the most iconic moments in civil rights history took place. It was Dr. Martin Luther King, and he was right on 125th Street between 7th and 8th. And he was sitting there signing autographs of a book he wrote. 
And as he was sitting there, a woman came up to him and says, are you Dr. King? He says, yes. And as soon as he uttered those words, she took a letter opener and plunged it into his chest. It missed his heart by just a few short inches. That night, he went home and had a crisis. He had to determine, he had to figure out, if I continue in this path, next time someone will have better aim and they're likely going to kill me. Dr. King, when he would later write speeches, he would include words like and phrases like, listen, we're going to the mountain and I might not get there with you, but we're going there anyway. He knew his life was a means to an end, but not to be the end itself. Had that been me, I'd have been like, listen, I'm not cut out for <laughs> speaking. I don't even like to speak like that, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you and I want a life of purpose and meaning and calling, then that meaning can't be us. If we're going to find what God has for us, first thing we need to do is give up control of our lives, to accept God's timing, to accept God's restrictions on your life, to accept God's, uh, God's when he closes the doors in, in our life, to accept it and to trust that God is doing something good and to say, God, whatever it is that you want for me to do, I'll do it. That's the first step in hearing from God. Now, Paul says the reason you should do this is also found in verse 1. Uh, he says in verse 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice. Now, it's really interesting that Paul says this word, that in view of the mercies of God, that I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. He could have said, in view of the sovereignty and the kingship and the lordship and the power and the majesty of God, I urge you to do it because God can make you do it anyway. He doesn't say that. He says, in view of the mercies. Romans is a, an amazing theological treatise. It starts with uh, talking about just the nature of human fallenness and the nature of sin in, in general, in which you and I prefer uh, the things that God has given us over God himself. And that leads to a whole long list of ways that we go wrong. And later, Paul talks about the nature of people and talks about there's nobody that's righteous. No, not one. And then Paul personalizes it in Romans 7. He says, I'm not just talking about people. I'm talking about me that there are things that I want to do that I don't do. And the things that I do want to do, uh, there are things that I don't want to do, and that's what I end up doing. What a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this great body of death? Then later, Paul gets into uh, to Romans 8, and he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation, none. There was condemnation in the past. Jesus Christ has lifted it completely from me. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He ends Romans 8 by talking about now nothing in all of creation. Nothing will be able to now separate you from this love of God. And over and over again, and up through chapter 11, Paul talks about the mercies of God. And here's why he's talking about the mercies. Because when Jesus demands everything from you, you need to first know that Jesus has first given his all to you first. We are called to be faithful by the one who was faithful to his call to us. A couple years ago, my son first turned two. Um, anybody who has a small kid knows that when a kid hits nap time and when they're like a half hour past nap time at a, such a young age, they are not rational beings. Um, so, he, you know, he was, you know, probably a half hour, 45 minutes past due and he was crying, snot coming out of his nose. And I went to put him in his bed, and as I put him there, I turned for a second, and then as I was turning back, I saw a little hand flying from my face. I tried to dodge it, but, yo, he caught me uh, right as a nice, it was a nice shot right in the face. Now, I grabbed his hand for a second. I was like, all right, where are you, Jordan? Look around. <laughs> all right, this is where you at, you with your kid. Now, we disciplined my son, and um, 
We want him to be a productive member of society and all these good things. We're not just letting him do whatever he wants. I knew in that moment he didn't need a beating. He didn't need a spanking. He didn't need a timeout. He didn't need me to take his dinosaurs. He needed a nap. As his father, I chose to be merciful to him and said, boy, lay down. Take a nap. <laughs> Three hours later, he woke up the most cheerful child uh, ever known to this world. One day, he might doubt my intentions for him. But if he were to look back and see all the times I've been merciful to him because I don't want to crush him, I don't, there's not a bone in my body that wants to crush him. Paul presents this concept to us that in view of the mercies of God, he tells us it's because Jesus, in any restriction, anything he puts on your life, any direction, any path he tells you to go down, he is not trying to crush you. He was crushed for you. And if you miss out on the mercies of God, you're going to start to think you might even fall prey to the lie of the enemy, which would call into question God's intentions for you. Now, you guys are really smart people. Some of you don't believe in the devil, but I do. And here's why I believe in the devil. And here's the earliest lie that the enemy has ever told human beings. It's that what God is trying to do in your life is he is trying to hold you back. He's trying to, he is trying to restrict you. He's trying to crush you. And in the gospel, when we see Jesus on the cross, we see the opposite, that he was crushed for us. In view of the mercies of God, in view of the love and the grace of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Uh, the second point is a whole lot shorter. Um, and we see in Romans 2, 12, rather, if we're going to discern God's will, Paul says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So first one, give up control of your life. And number two, don't allow this age to form your views. Now, this age is something that Paul uh, talked about, and it's basically the power of group, social groups, cultural norms, institutions, and traditions to mold the patterns of our behavior. Here's how it plays out in our work. How do you define this success? What kind of work is valuable or meaningful? Here's what Paul is saying. If what you have filled in that blank with is based on this age, culture, or what society says, you're likely going to miss out on being able to discern what God's will is for your life. So don't be conformed to this age. And Paul is essentially saying that in order to discern God's will, we need to be able to hear God's, God's words to us to give us the definitions that you and I need to succeed. Now, one of the problems with uh, allowing culture, for example, to determine for us what success looks like or what we should be doing with our lives or to direct us in any meaningful way is that culture changes all the time. Growing up in the 80s, uh, it was a perfectly acceptable thing. It was a perfectly acceptable art project for you to make an ashtray for your parents. You would like form some clay, put your little six-year-old thumbprint in there, sprinkle some glitter in that joint. We made addiction adorable. Now, we laugh at this now, 25 years later, 30 years later, but imagine a teacher, imagine your kid coming home, imagine present, all you educators, imagine saying, guys, I have the idea. Today, we make ashtrays. <laughs> you would get fired, and there's no union in the city that can save you from your job. But here's what we don't believe. For whatever reason, we believe that we are the enlightened ones. And we have figured it all out. And finally, wisdom has reached its zenith. It has reached its height. And that uh, nobody will ever question the decisions that we're making today. Our kids and our grandkids will look back at some things that we're doing and will cringe. Culture is a terrible, uh, uh, 
way for us to determine what God's will is for our life because it changes, and, it's, and it has blind spots in our lives. So Paul warns us against that. Now, here's a couple of things that our cultural values, and this is like racism or misogyny. It is everywhere. Self-advancement, self-preservation, and self-promotion. This is so interwoven, especially in New York City, this is so interwoven into the way that we see work that the way we, have, we evaluate work without us even knowing what it is, is we're always looking, thinking about how we can advance ourselves, how we can preserve the version of life that we want to live, how we can promote ourselves in life. Now, to a certain extent, there's nothing wrong with advancing in your career. Uh, there's nothing wrong with being promoted, but our culture values things and if we are conformed to this age and putting that in terms, putting that on what our job should be, we're going to miss out on God completely. Jesus preaches a sermon, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in Matthew 5. And Jesus gives us some principles that are meant to transform and meant to renew our minds, which are the opposite of what we see in our culture. And in it, he talks about, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Their culture uh, valued wealth, not, not poverty, and Jesus presents something completely different to us. Uh, those who are poor in spirit have nothing to prove, nothing to protect, and nothing to possess. It's the opposite of self-advancement, self-preservation, and self-promotion. If you were to read and to let Jesus uh, renew our minds and to, to read through the Gospels and see what God values, man, it would, it would completely change the way we're approaching our work. Some of us don't consider certain things to be good or godly. That's because we're evaluating them based on the wisdom of this age, not God's will. Some of you guys are in jobs right now that you hate or you don't really find meaning in it because it's not promoting you. It's not advancing you. It's not making you feel good. It's not something that you can brag about to your friends. You might be missing out completely on what God wants for you exactly where you're at. Now, we're finally getting to the good stuff of after you have submitted your life to God and you've given up control of your life and you say, God, I'm not going to be the end. I'm going to be a means to an end. And after you've said uh, you're not going to adopt worldly wisdom on how you should view success and meaning in your life, that you haven't been conformed to this age, what are the really practical ways that you can do and the things that you can do to determine what it is that God would have you to do for your work? Now, this is a two-part answer. The first is eliminating things that are bad options. And the second process is confirming things that are good options. To eliminate bad options, I think it boils down to your gifts, your desires, and your opportunities. Now, if you are not gifted at something, um, then it might not be what God has for you. Uh, one of the things I get to do as a side job is uh, I get to kind of assess church planters, uh, people who go and plant churches, and... Um, you know, there's some people I've spent five minutes with, and I'm like, I don't even like you after five minutes. There's not, you're not going to be able to plant no church, bro. You need to figure out another profession because you're not good at this. You don't have a gift with people. You're really awkward, and like, it's just not likely to succeed for you. There's a lot of jobs that you can do that are going to work. This ain't the one. I don't believe in the overnight success. I don't believe in the, the self-made person. I don't believe in someone who was naturally born to do something. We all have to refine our gifts and grow in our gifts. Uh, Michael Jordan got cut from his, you know, uh, JV or varsity team in the 10th grade, and he turned out to be all right, you know what I'm saying? But um, <laughs> So gifts are something that need to be developed. But here's the thing about gifts. They need to be internally felt, but externally validated. You should not be the arbiter of your own giftedness. At some point, your gifts should grow to meet what you think that God is calling you to do. 
The second one are your desires. Do you actually want to do this? If it's something that is so against uh, you know, the way that you're wired and the way that God has made you, then it might not be the type of profession that God is calling you to do. Uh, years ago, my first assignment when I was working at a church, I was over event planning. And if you've ever worked with me for more than 10 seconds, you know that that is a nightmare waiting to happen. I'm terrible at event planning, and mostly because I don't ever think about details. I don't like details. I'm a big picture guy, and I hated my work, and I have no desire to do it. There are some things that you can just eliminate because you have no desire. And the third one are opportunities. Do you have opportunities in front of you right now that you can take advantage of to move, that, move down that road? If door after door after door after door after door after door is being closed in your face, then the answer is either not yet or no. But I don't want you to make an unwise decision and moving in a direction if there are no opportunities in front of you. Um, so that's how you eliminate. Now, how do you confirm um, the gifts or the call that God has for you in your life? How do you actually move in this process? Uh, the first part is to ask God and to believe that God will actually hear you and answer you. And James, uh, the author tells us that if any man or woman lacks wisdom, we should ask God who gives to all without finding fault. Uh, last year, my boy Mike Kelsey came and preached and, and talked about that verse, and it was, he brought out something that I've, uh, I'd never heard before, and it was something so simple but so profound. Why does, God in, why does Scripture include that last phrase, that God gives wisdom without finding fault? You and I all have that friend that every time you call them, what's the first thing they do? They remind, oh, you, you know what I'm saying? I didn't think I could reach out to you. You brand new now. They spend the first 10 minutes talking about all the times you didn't hit them up. And you're like, this is why I don't hit you up, because you are mad annoying. Scripture tells us that God gives wisdom to all without finding fault. So even if you haven't been reading your Bible, and even if you haven't been living the life that you think that you should be living, God gives wisdom to all without finding fault. So the first step in terms of confirming it is to ask God. And the second one might sound a little bit not spiritual, and I hope it's a little frustrating for you, but here it is. Just start doing something. Just go. Start moving in that direction right now. There's an author by the name of Jim Collins, and he writes his book, Good to Great, and he talks about this principle of shooting bullets, not cannonballs. But essentially, here's so many people get paralyzed because we're waiting for this massive answer to be open, and what God is actually calling for you to do is just a small step in that direction. And I was talking to a friend the other day, and you know, she's thinking about getting into a career of sales. And if you're not in that career right now, start taking some small steps, some small reversible steps in that direction. Now, back in the day in a civil war or whatever, uh, an army would have thousands of bullets and like nine cannonballs. And here's what Jim Collins is saying. Uh, in the army, they would shoot bullets in every direction pretty indiscriminately, and they would find out where the enemy was. And once they found out the enemy was over there, that's when they would load up the cannonballs and shoot it in that direction. But bullets were cheap, they didn't cost them that much, and they wouldn't regret it if they went in that decision. If you're thinking about music, don't sell your apartment or move out of your apartment and move across the country uh, in and, and, and pursuit of a music dream. Just get some studio time in New York City. Start moving in that direction right now. And along the way, trust that God will continue to shape, mold, and refine that vision that you have over your life and whether or not it is actually what he wants for you. We've said this prayer a number of times from Frederick Douglass. He says, I prayed for 20 years and I got no answer until I started praying with my legs. Many of us, need to start praying with our legs. If you feel God might be calling you in a direction, ask yourself, what are the small steps that I can make in, in pursuit of that right now? And here's why this is so important, and this is where we're going to end today. 
The guidance that we actually want is not something that God gives, but something that God does. Guidance is not something that God gives. He's not going to just give you guidance, toss it, and walk away. God does guide us. In John 14 and 8, Jesus gives us his promise. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. What is his promise? What are orphans? They're people who are uncared for, people who have no direct parental support, supervision, and guidance. Jesus is saying this, I have not left you as an orphan. I will never leave you. And certainly at the end of uh, the book of Matthew, when Jesus gives his promise in the Great Commission, he leaves them with these words that I want to leave us with today. And lo, I am with you until the very end of the age. The promise of Jesus walking alongside of us means that you and I could start making moves in, that, in, in, in a direction that we think God might be calling us in. After we've submitted our lives to God, after we're not being conformed, we can just move in that direction and trust and know that Jesus has not left us as orphans. He will guide us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, I pray for my brothers and my sisters in here who will be making these small changes in their lives coming up, and I pray that they would feel uh, from you and they would feel from the community around them the guidance that we so desperately need and search after. Lord, would you lead us in clear paths for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.